Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today we are doing a part two uh, on tiptoeing through uh, Van Til's apologetic. Um, so if you guys remember uh, a while back, I had a gentleman by the name of John Kaus on my show, and he gave a wonderful PowerPoint presentation of the intricacies of uh, Van Til's transcendental argument. Uh, and so for those who want to... Um, kind of be reacquainted with that presentation. I did put a link to part one of this discussion uh, in the description of this um, of this particular episode. So I highly recommend you guys check that out. And I'm not sure how people typically listen to my channel, whether you listen to it in the background or you wait for it to come on podcast and uh, you know you listen to it. That episode I had with John, the part one, I highly recommend that you actually watch because his, his PowerPoint presentation is very useful in um, helping you follow the line of argumentation that that he makes. So um, I highly recommend and you will be entertained. Uh, my opinion, I have kind of like a top five people who uh, have awesome presentations. Uh, John is definitely in the top five. It was really, really well done. Uh, you know, even if I was a classical apologist listening to John uh, teach presuppositionalism, I would still be impressed with this. I'm like, I disagree with you, man, but those are awesome PowerPoint slides. So, um, I highly recommend that you guys uh, check out part one. All right. Uh, but for today, we're going to be talking about part two of this talk. So he's going to kind of continue. Um, I know I hear, uh, I hear people, I see people kind of coming in in the chat. Welcome Mark Farnham, who is also a guest, uh, an author of the book, um, Every Believer Confident. Highly recommend you check that out. I've got the other Paul who I've had a few times. He'll be coming back on on Friday. So welcome, welcome. Um, but real quick, before I introduce John and uh, allow more people to trickle on in, I want to remind people of this upcoming conference, the Epic Online Calvinism Conference. Uh, it is on January 21st. So we're in January 23 right here at the beginning, but it's going to be coming up fast. We already have a bunch of people who have signed up. Um, you can sign up for this and RSVP your spot right now by going to revealedapologetics.com. Click on the Presup U drop-down menu, and you could RSVP right there for the Epic Online Calvinism Conference. Uh, I will be speaking on the topic of Calvinism versus Molinism. James White will be covering um, problem texts within the whole Calvinism debate. Guillaume is going to be talking about the importance of analogies when critiquing Calvinism. Oftentimes, people use analogies to kind of critique the Calvinist position. He's going to be speaking about the proper use of that. Uh, Scott Christensen will be defending compatibilism. And Saiten Bruggenkate will be talking about defending Calvinism at the street level. Um, you know, when people bring objections, kind of the everyday sorts of objections, how do we interact with that? So he'll be covering that. So this is a, I'm really excited. I think this is going to be an excellent opportunity for folks to learn. And it is epic. It will be from 1030 in the morning to 430 in the afternoon. And each speaker will be have a scheduled time with some brief breaks in between. And at the end, there will be a panel where you can actually um, interact with each of our guests. You can literally, we'll be sharing a Zoom screen and you can ask your question to each of the speakers. Um, we did this for the, the Epic Online Precept Conference and it was it was awesome. We had a lot of people sign up and it was very fruitful and beneficial. So highly recommend you guys check that out. Remember, January 21st is when it happens. You can sign up from now until shortly before that. All right. Okay, well, without further ado, let me introduce uh, John Kaus here, who's going to be presenting part two of Tiptoeing Through Van Til's Apologetic. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. 
Well, thank you for being willing to come on. I absolutely loved your first presentation and um, I was just reminding folks to check that that discussion out. So mm. um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to having you on more in the future. Um, uh, where can people find you if they want to check out other stuff other than the thing that you that you did on my show earlier? So all of my teachings that I do and there, I do a lot of, I'm doing a lot of creating right now. Um, and, but it's, it takes a while to, to, to create the content. So I'm trying to make presentations every six months and then post them online and, and try to make them unique. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll have a young earth creation presentation coming here in, in April. Uh, but you can go to Christchurch Twin Cities YouTube page, Christchurch Twin Cities. Just put it into YouTube. It'll come up. And then their YouTube page, I post all my videos there. Just not yours. I guess I don't grab yours, but they're the only ones that aren't. Okay, excellent. Now, you would identify as a Vantillian presuppositionalist. Um, that, again, presuppositionalism is kind of like a, an interesting word in that um, – different people pop into your head when you hear the term. So like mm -hmm. when I think of classicalism, I, there are a couple of apologies that pop in my head. When I think of presuppositionalism, there are people who pop in my head and there's debate mm -hmm. as to whether some of those people are um, quote unquote, truly presuppositional within the Vantillian tradition. Where mm -hmm. would you um, kind of place yourself amongst kind of, you know, folks like Greg Bonson, John Frame, James Anderson, Scott Oliphant, um, who would you say you are more in line with of Van Til students, not so much Van Til, I guess all of them somewhat. Yeah. Different. I, I am 100% a disciple of Bonson. Okay. Yeah. So what is the primary way that you learned of Bonson? Was it through his audio or through his writings? No, it was actually through, I was 2000, it was 2009 and I bought the book, um, the ultimate proof of creation by Jason Lyle. Hmm. And in I love that book. It was uh, it, it's how I became a Vantillian. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it was uh, I really I enjoy it. And in the beginning, the preface, I think it was, he mentions Bonson and mm. who is this crazy guy? And so I, I actually ordered, I think Van Hill's apologetic and just started with it. <laughs> and so <laughs> he started gone, with the with the easy with the easy right in. You know, it was tough sledding through it. Um, but then, but I just, I loved it so much. And then I've gone through it now a number of times just over the years. And, and then I would jump into, you know, philosophy. I, so when, when, it, when that happened with, I knew, so I read Geisler's book on apologetics, the green one, the uh, introduction to apologetics, yeah. Christian apologetics. And I think he has, I think it's that book where he has a quick thing on presuppositionalism. And I remember reading it and thinking, ah, oh, this sounds right. Even his bad presentation of it sounded correct. And then he critiqued it and everything. Oh, well, I guess that's not right. And I just, you know, moved on. Sure. Um, so I was, I, my heart was in it even before I knew it. And then when lot, when that happened with Lyle, I just, I dove into it and I knew because up until that point, I was deeply into younger creation versus okay. evolution. Uh, God used that topic to bring me into the faith. Hmm. I've always loved that topic. It was my first love in apologetics. But then when so you Van, were, you became a Christian because of issues of young earth creationism. Yeah. Yeah. So See, that's, I was, that's funny that you say that because a lot of people think that young earth creationism is so anti-intellectual. It moves people away from the faith. It's interesting that those issues are actually hmm. what brought you into the faith. Yeah. I think a lot of that's just academic flexing. 
Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's actually true. Okay. I think, I think, I think young earth creationism um, is very intuitive to, to, mm -hmm. the, to the average man. And I remember laughing at descriptions of evolution when I was an unbeliever in like seventh grade talking about, you know, how life started from this primordial ooze and lightning hitting this such and such and people, us talking about it as friends at two in the morning. And I was no Christian and just laughing at it, thinking this is ridiculous. How could you believe such a thing? Um, <laughs> but it, when I was a junior in high school, I had a football coach who witnessed to me in, in a weight room mm. because I, I liked rap music and I was trying to play it. And oh, yeah, I thought you were about that thug life back in the day. All yeah, right. That's right. I was a huge Tupac guy. And, <laughs> and so we started shouting at each other and I stormed out of the weight room. Well, he came and apologized to me about two weeks later, not for the content, but for the tone. Mm. And I kind of blew him off and walked away. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit grabbed me and pulled me, pulled me in. So I, over the next few months, I would go to him with questions. And then on Sunday morning, Channel 13, I think it was in my hometown, Mankato, uh, there was a Young Earth Creation presentation happening. Mm -hmm. And and I would watch it and, and think through the evidences that were given. And God used that to show me that he is my creator. I have broken his law and I am helpless without Jesus. Mm. And it all it all changed from there. And I so I and I'm very compulsive in, in what I study and my interests. So I dove into young earth creation for a number of years and I love it. Um, so I'm glad to present on it here in, in April. But then when I met Van when I met Van Til's work through Bonson, and both of those equally reading both of them, mm -hmm. uh, when that happened, I, I knew that I wanted to I wanted to make my life's work in apologetics furthering that work. Sure. I wanted to make it a a a it, it, maybe this wouldn't happen, but I wanted to try to have a significant advance on what Bonson did. I didn't know if it could happen, but that was my goal. And that's still my goal today. Hey, there's nothing wrong with dreaming large. Yeah. You know, we, have, we have to be very careful how we view some of these like uh, big apologists. We sometimes have such a big view of them that we think, well, mm -hmm. I can't possibly contribute more than this person. And that's not necessarily true. If we work hard and we study, they were human beings. We're human beings. They put in hard work. We can put in hard work. And hopefully by God's grace, we can build on a foundation that many of them kind of, you know, put down before us. So that that's awesome. So I encourage you, man, keep up, keep up the good work. And yeah. uh, that's awesome, dude. Well, um, well, let's jump right in. So this is part two of tiptoeing through Van Til's apologetic. I'm going to put your, your PowerPoints up. And you can kind of jump off right where you think we need to, uh, given the content of our previous uh, previous talk. All right. All right. Let's put this up on okay. the screen for you. All right. And um, can you control that yourself or do you need me to? Yeah, yep, it's working. Okay, yeah. great. All right, go for it. You can begin whenever you're ready. Okay. So this the second part is cleanup work. I, I title it cleanup work. Uh, it's mainly the stuff that I found as hindrances to finding i wanted to lay bare van Til's apologetic which i think i did in part one but that took years to unpack and to like go through dead ends and try to figure out how to how to prove this to make it plain so people could see hmm. and there are a number of barriers that came up from within the literature of just van Til and bonson that were i think think now looking back on it things that need to be cleaned up that if you, if you want to advance Van Til and Bonson, you have to 
get past these, like you have to clean this stuff up to real, I, in my opinion, to actually go and, and make contributions sure. and not, not just popularize what they did. Nothing wrong with popularizing what they did. Um, but if you want to advance it in some way that they didn't, you, th these things are, I think are roadblocks that would keep you from doing that. Okay. So this is all in the spirit of advancing uh, the two scholars that I, probably the two that I most adore and would die defending. Mm. So this is all out of pure love and respect and sure. admiration. All right. All right. So the, the first thing, and this is probably most commonly um, committed by my fellow Vantilians who I love, uh, is there are actually two different ways to present Vantil's apologetic. They do not overlap. They're distinct. They do okay. not overlap. They're, they're, they, don't, they don't go together. But even with Bonson, uh, they're, they're often put together. And, and not the whole argument. Parts of each are put, to, are put together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the whole of one and parts of another um, are put together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to show you both distinct ways. And I'm going to use two terms that I'm, I'm going to use them differently than Van Til and Bonson did. I think I think for good reason. I think it'll bring clarity. Okay. Uh, but then we'll get we'll get through how how they used it. So the first way I call the direct way, and this is what we saw in the last presentation, and that is where we go right to God's truth, and then from there we infer that Christianity is true, okay, deductively. So this okay. is so this is proving it with certainty, starting with God's truth. Most of the axioms that we talked about last time were what scripture taught or what, what it teaches plainly. All right. So that's the direct method. I think that's the right term to use because you're going directly to God's, you're going right to proving Christianity. You're not going through some other avenue. It's direct. Now the indirect, oh, sorry. And so this would be the, the diagram that we worked through last time. Okay. Uh, and so theorem five is that Christianity is true. And this is showing you the structure of how you get there. And and the A1, A2 is axiom one, axiom two, axiom three? Correct. Yep. So axioms A th uh, one through four lead to theorem one. And then you look at uh, theorem one. And then, so let's see here, read my own thing here. So axiom five would lead to theorem two. Okay. And I go through this individually, so it's easier to follow instead of just doing it all at once here. Sure. But then... But then uh, theorem two and axiom four would lead to theorem three. So just follow the, follow the coloring. And then theorem one and axiom six would lead to theorem four. Then axiom seven and theorem four would lead to theorem five. And so it's a purely deductive argument, I think, from, a, from God's assumptions. These are not neutral assumptions. These are God's truth that we can then, that, that, you, that, are, um, that are true. Like there's no, there's no argument against them. Sure. And, and so then it, it's an argument that proves Christianity is true with certainty, and yet it's not neutral. And we talked about that last time. Right. All right. So that would be the direct way. The indirect way, which this has not been proven. No one's done this to, to, to my knowledge. I'm actually, I don't know, probably 75% of the way through finishing this. Okay. So we'll see, see if God blesses that this year to, to finish. But um, now we don't need the indirect, right? Because if you have one argument, you don't need another, right? Sure. So it's, but, but I think it'd be good to, I think it, you can do it. So I think it should be, should be done. Sure. But the indirect way is you start with the unbelieving position. You go right to a, and Van Til would define this as autonomy. Like what is the unique 
right? The uniting feature of all unbelief. It's autonomy. It's an autonomous attitude. So let's just call it autonomy. And what you would do then is you would, from autonomy, you would infer or, or deduce a falsehood. Well, through modus tollens then, because no truth can imply a falsehood, you would then infer that, that the autonomy is false. Would this be a form of a reductio ad absurdum? Yeah, yeah, okay. standard reductio. So let's assume autonomy is true. We reduce the falsehood, and then we then conclude autonomy is false. Okay. okay, well, then we'd have to assume or prove that there are only two positions, Christianity or autonomy. And assuming that we could make good on that, then we've already proven that autonomy is false. And so we can conclude with certainty that Christianity is true. And if you listen to Bonson, most, most of what he did was in this indirect. He was brilliant at refuting examples of autonomy. Mm-hmm. He never refuted autonomy as a category, all of it. He, he, he would do it kind of broadly, but a lot of it was with specific examples, especially in debates, which he did it you know, brilliantly. Um, but no one's actually done the argument like this. Now notice if you do it and you succeed here, I never went into issues in Christianity. I'd have to define Christianity, but I never got into what, you know, go, I didn't have to go through axioms of what the Bible teaches. And because stuff it's like indirect. That. It's because it, it's indirect. Okay. Well, I think this is the, this is, these are the terms we should be using for the two different forms. Now, often what people will do is they'll talk about, well, first we, you know, we go into the unbelieving position and we knock that down. But if you knock that down, you're done. Because if you could, if you assuming that there were only two positions, then you won. You don't have to get into that Christianity is the is can account for intelligibility. It has to. There are only two. You knock down the one of them. The other one is true. So, all right. So you don't need you don't need both of them. But often what will happen is we'll knock down the unbelieving position, and then we'll say now we'll go on to come on to our position. We'll show how our position can account for it. And and that's there's nothing wrong with that, but. That's not even the whole direct position, right? Because the direct position is not just that you can account for it. It's that you're the only one that can account for it. That's right. You're the, the only home in which no, the only home for knowledge is the Christian view of the world. Mm-hmm. It's the only one. Now, since there is knowledge, then it's true. Okay. That's, that's in summary, very quickly, that's the direct argument sure. we went to last time. Sure. Okay. All right. But, but, but bringing these two things together, though, and thinking you have to do both of them together is very, I know for me it was, it was very confusing. And how do I actually deductively put this thing down? Because it, it, it pulls you in two different directions. Okay. And it's because they're two different arguments. And so you think that people have been inappropriately mixing these. So like when yeah. they present their pre- their transcendental argument, they're mixing inappropriately a, a form of the direct argument and indirect argument. Yes, correct. They're not saying false things about the direct or about sure. the indirect. You know, sure. they're just... But it, it's it's unclear, like it's not. And I think I think if they just clean that up, it would greatly improve. It does not going to radically change what they're doing. It's just clarifying how, how certain words are used and pulling some things apart, you know, in the in the rhetoric. Okay. All right. So then let's show show how this plays out in Van Til and Bonson. So he says the method of reasoning by presupposition may be said to be indirect rather than direct. The issue now, Van Til here is going to use indirect as his entire argument, whereas okay. I made it one of the arguments, right? One of the two different ways. He's going to use it for the whole argument, and he's going to use direct in a way that's more like autonomy, like autonomous, neutral reasoning. So that's how he's using the term. Okay. 
He says, the issue between believers and non-believers in Christian theism cannot be settled by a direct appeal to facts or laws whose nature and significance is already agreed upon by both parties to the debate, okay, neutrality. The question is rather as to what is the final reference point required to make the facts and laws intelligible. The question is as to what the facts and laws really are. Are they what the non-Christian methodology assumes that they are? Are they what the, non, are what the Christian theistic methodology presupposes they are? Bonson then says, or sorry, until Roman Catholics and Arminians are bound to use the direct method of approach to the natural man, the method that assumes the essential correctness of a non-Christian and non-theistic conception of reality. Bonson, thus there can be no direct proof offered for the truth of, I, of either perspective. The argument between believer and unbeliever must then be indirect and made it the impossibility of a neutral approach to reasoning and facts. In seeking to follow the example of Paul, Reformed apologetics needs above all else to make clear from the beginning. Okay, so, so that's how they use the terms, which I think is confusing because when you're going to scripture right away, that you're, you're doing it direct, like that's what you're, it is. It's a direct you know, argument to Christianity. Um, so I think, I think we, should, we should change how those two, teams, those two terms are used, but that's how they use them. Now notice though, when they unpack the indirect, they are taking those two that I talked about and they're mixing the two. So in this one, he's talking about, now this would be the second form of argument that I talked about, the indirect. He says, in seeking to follow the example of Paul, reformed apologetics needs above all else to make clear from the beginning that it is challenging the wisdom of the natural man on the authority of the self-attesting Christ speaking in scripture. So that would be the critique of, of, of unbelief. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Doing this, reformed apologist must place himself on the position of his opponent the natural man, in order to show him that on the presupposition of human autonomy, human predication cannot even get underway. So that would be what I call the that's internal. internal. That's the internal critique. Yeah, yeah, in, internal critique. And if you can do that for all of autonomy, or for all non-Christian worldviews, you have to show that they're all autonomous in nature. If you could do that, then you've proven Christianity. Okay. All right, so then... Bonson says, in order to display this truth to the unbeliever, the presuppositionalist is willing to think things through in terms of what the unbeliever claims are his basic assumptions. And then for the sake of comparison, so that's this is where we put the two together, he invites the unbeliever to think through in terms of the Christian's basic assumptions. And there's something wrong with that rhetorically. In fact, you might do this where you, you critique unbelief, and let's say you could demonstrate that that was false, and then you could you could tell the unbeliever, well, there are only two options, the Christian or the non-Christian. The non-Christian is false. So the Christian has to be true. And and then, but if he says, but what about Christian? But, but tell me about Christianity. Well, sure. Look, look, it makes sense of this world. Right. But that but now you've but you've already finished the argument. Now you're just teaching him about Christianity. You, you don't have any more burden to. Does that make sense? Yeah. What if someone says it's a false dichotomy to say it's either Christianity or autonomy? Well, he'd have to he'd have to prove that. So the the Christian. Well, then, so they would say you're saying that there's only two options, but it seems like there are other. I mean, there there is a how do, how can you show that every non-Christian position is autonomous? Yeah. Like what if a person holds to a god that they believe is necessary that we have to depend on that god to make sense out of things? It's a great question. This is the one I'm actually working on right now in this argument. So, okay. but yeah, I, um, when I finish the argument, I'll have a, I, I think it gets into how Christianity defines itself. So mm -hmm. it, it, 
there can be no third option. Okay. So in giving it, but I have not worked that out plainly. So I don't want to. Okay. Sure. You know, that's okay. All right. Um, and that's part of the reason why I worked on the direct argument first, because if you can make good on the direct argument, then you can prove that all contrary ones are false, right? right. Because it is true. Um, and if someone else wants to say that there's a third option that I haven't accounted for, we'll, you know, produce it and we can, we can, and if it's consistent with Christianity, I don't think it's really hard to talk through how you have to be either for Christ or against Christ because sure. he, what, um, anyway, but so if I finish the indirect argument, we can, we can unpack that. In, okay. Uh, no hopefully worries. Great clarity. Um, okay. It clearly, okay. So, Van, and then Bonson talks here about a, a paper Van Til, one of the early papers Van Til wrote, I think it was on Whitehead and Whitehead's uh, metaphysics. And he's talking about the salient lines of Van Til's presuppositional approach. And he lists four of them, but notice these four, locating the opponent's crucial presuppositions, criticizing the autonomous attitude that arises from a failure to honor the creator creature distinction, exposing the eternal and destructive philosophical tensions that attend autonomy, well, those three together are the indirect method right right that's what you're that that all those are all and if you could do those you're good it's over yes. now d is then and setting forth the only viable alternative biblical christianity that's well, the direct you, well yes that's the direct and if you can do that you don't need a through c hmm. but i think practically speaking it's it it gives it clarity to say okay your worldview doesn't work because here's why. And I think setting forth the biblical Christian position actually adds content and context so that the person you're refuting understands why your position is the case. So, yes. so in other words, right. so, so I think I think it's uh, so I think there is value in setting in setting out the direct case, even though you've also made an indirect case. I think they complement each other rather nicely. Oh, yes, yes, very much so. But it's important to understand, though, if you make good in the indirect, not just refuting member the person in front of you, but unbelief in general. Right. Right. Because you can refute a Hindu in front of you, but you haven't proven Christianity by doing that. Right. So That's right. But let's say you would just prove all unbelief in front of someone. Well, you should talk about Christianity and talk about how but Christ, Christianity can make good of this. But just understand, though. You don't have to unpack this for the unbeliever in front of it, but understand in your own mind, though, this is now you're just doing rhetorical work, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're just this is more, um, I mean, you're evangelizing through the whole argument, but sure. you're, the argument has been finished, it's been completed, right. right? Okay, but in our minds, though, I don't think that's what's going on. It's that, oh, I'm not done, <laughs> right? Like, I, th I think, I think if you asked a Vantillian if he made good on that without talking through the, these distinctions. He would agree that no, I got to keep going. Right. But you don't. You may rhetorically have to keep going, you know, to be winsome. But not um, for the argument itself. You've already established what you not for the argument itself. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is a synopsis of the indirect or two-step. This is again, they call it a two-step apologetical procedure that presuppositional apologetics advocates. The first step, see, it's not, it's not two different ones, there's two steps, right? Either one you can do first, but there are two steps to it. Mm -hmm. The first step is to lay out the Christian worldview in terms of which human experience is intelligible and the objections the unbeliever can be contextually defeated. And notice even in this one, this first step, see Bonson's a little sloppy here. This is not the full direct method. This is just it's sufficient, not that it's necessary. Okay. Okay, so this isn't even the full direct he's saying. 
Now, the second step is to show that within the unbelievers worldview, nothing is intelligible. Well, that is the entire, basically it's the entire indirect, right? As long as you had the, there are only two options. Okay. Not even objections to the Christian's viewpoint. The order in which these two steps in the argument are taken is not important. So now Bonte would obviously, if you asked him to clarify that, he would agree completely that sure. you'd have to show it's necessary, you know, not just that it's sufficient. And he talks about that, you know, all the time. Um, but even in this presentation, though, you can think that, oh, I've done it as long as I've done both steps. Well, there are two different arguments and the first step isn't even the whole argument of, of the direct. All right. Since there are only two options at the most fundamental level, the reputation of the unbelieving one is an indirect proof of the other. So he affirms the direct, the indirect method. You know, he's, he's completely affirming of that. Um, in his book, Presuppositional Apologetics, which I'm not, I don't think it's actually known when this was penned, uh, probably maybe when he was at Reform, either late 70s or early, early uh, 80s. Hmm. Um, but he said, and he admits, yet no human, not even a Christian apologist, has the omniscience to know all possible rival hypotheses, nor the eternity needed in which to test them all. So he, he knew that you can't know all possible options, right? So you'd have to, you'd have to refute it as a, as a category. Right. And, but he never did that. And so the indirect, I've never seen someone do it. Indirect, I don't believe has, has, has been done. Well, he had, he did explain how one is to do it. Yeah. But I don't know if he gave the details of what it looks like. Correct. Because you can, because I think he talks about this in his lecture series on transcendental arguments. Yeah. Where he talks about if Christianity is a, uh, does provide the preconditions for intelligibility, then it must be the only view that can, because you can't have two um, sufficient transcendental well, that, preconditions. That would be, the, that would be the, direct, the direct argument that he, in that, in that presentation, he talks about that the necessity follows from the sufficiency. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. And, but let's see, that's still direct though. Okay. All right. And that's actually, that, that sounds right, right? When you hear that, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But actually making it happen is very difficult. <laughs> to actually make the argument itself. Yes. Yes. That's it's very difficult. Um, right. But I think, I think that's what happened in our part one. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So the next one, these next two will, will go quicker. Uh, and then we'll get into some some deeper stuff. All right. So one of them is, and this isn't a big deal, but I, I do. Th I just want to clarify because it can get people uh, again just on paths that aren't essential. So the topic of self-deception, this is my opinion, is not central to Vantil's apologetic. Bonson's dissertation at USC was on, uh, you know, self-deception. Self yeah, the apologetic uh, implications. That, I mean, that was an article he wrote that dumbed down his dissertation. Sure. But I forget the actual, the exact title. I have the dissertation up in my, my library, but um, okay. So there is no question that scripture teaches this complex view of the unbeliever. He does not know God being an unbeliever who repudiates the truth of God's revelation. Nevertheless, he does in fact know God very well. So if you're a Vantillian, this is pretty common to you, our reading of Romans 1, God knows God. God knows God. Uh, the unbeliever knows God. He suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. And so he does not know God, right? He, he rejects God. So he does not know God as a, as a believer, uh, but he does know God as an unbeliever. And how do we unpack that epistemologically? Uh, and also in our uh, philosophy of beliefs, Bonson does that very well in his, in his dissertation. 
All right, but he says, because both sides of this complex situation are biblically based, Van Til is to be commended for incorporating them into the heart of his apologetic. And Van Til thought this was the biggest obstacle, actually, for his apologetic. And so mm -hmm. Bonson, it's a faithful student of his, set out to, to solve it. And it was great. And it's a, it's a great resource in that objection. But notice, though, when I went through the argument, I never talked about this. Sure. And the indirect argument, you don't have to talk about this. This is not a central objection. In fact, I can talk intelligibly about or meaningfully about someone knowing God and yet not knowing God or believing in God and yet not believing in God. And, and I don't have to be able to unpack that uh, precisely for it to be acceptable because the unbeliever cannot take that and make it a contradiction. So if he can't make it a contradiction, I could just say, you know what? I don't really know how this actually works. Sure. Like I can't set it out well. And, and that's, but as long as he can't make it a contradiction, right? it's fine, right? It doesn't, it's not a problem. To yeah, argue. yeah. John, I usually say that in some profound way, man has a sufficient knowledge of God that makes him culpable. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's all I say. I was like, well, what, well, what is the nature of that? Not, well, I don't know the details. I can read you Romans one. And so we can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, but the, the Bible does teach that in some way, without working all of the metaphysical details, man mm -hmm. has a knowledge of him and that's sufficient. How are you going to make that a contradiction? Yeah. You really yeah, couldn't. And you, you know. and you can't. Right. So, uh, and it really, really, I bring this up. It's not to, you know, attack Bonson here, but just, just to, it, it's important for people who are following Bonson, let's say a hundred years from now in Van Til and trying to advance the method to think through, this is why we need to get the argument down, think through what is essential. And then from there, build out things that haven't been answered, which, sure. so just right now we've seen the indirect has not been answered, right? So we can prove, prove the indirect. Uh, all right, the next one, and this is more just a commentary on apologetics in general, but Bonson mentions it, so I use him as the quote, but it's not particularly to him, it's to all of apologetics. Sure. And that is, we should welcome the burden of proof. I think, I think it's a, it weakens our position when we try to quibble over whose burden it is to prove, you know, do I have to prove God's, is it my burden to prove God's existence or is it your burden to disprove it? And so he says, in this special case, the burden of proof in the argument between a theist and an anti-theist would shift to the person denying God's existence. Now, if you, if you have a proof, you should welcome the burden. That's how proofs work. Mm -hmm. Right. I have a proof. We'll stand up and give it. Right. And then, and then people will try to attack it. And it's and if you have a proof, an actual proof, one, there shouldn't be a, there shouldn't be ambiguity. Terms should be clearly defined. So your definition should be fairly clear. Your axioms will be clearly listed. Your rule, your inferences from the axioms to the theorems will be clearly displayed. And so if someone wants to refute you, there isn't this gymnastics of trying to unpack your natural language and like like the political debates or even some apologetics debates where you're, you're like throwing all these things at the wall. You got to try to piece together the person's argument just to refute it. And often you, and it's just this back and forth of not really getting at the heart of it. Well, if you have a proof, just present it and the person can critique your definitions, critique your axioms, or say it's illogical, right? That, that the inference didn't work. And, and that's it. And, and if they don't do that, they're just avoiding the argument. It's fairly straightforward if you have an actual proof. Uh, few, but few arguments that we give are actually proofs. And I think that's why we quibble over these things about burden of proof. 
Um, but I think we need to put that, we need to get our proofs for Christianity and use them and welcome the burden. Okay. Let the unbeliever sit back, but force him to interact with the argument. Don't let him get off into why he hates God. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a that's a big deal, especially with a lot of presuppositionalist debates where they'll say, hey, prove to me you're God. And when we ask for their worldview to, to provide an illustration as to why their worldview can't account for these things and, and ours can, they don't want to talk about their worldview. Mm-hmm. So they, they're not really participating in the debate. They just want to disagree with you without actually exposing their own position to mm-hmm. engage the actual conversation. Yeah, if you have, you have some a few exceptions where people are like, "Hey, well, here's my worldview, and here's how I think I could account for these things." But in my experience, I've seen a lot of people just not want to put their worldview out there; they just want to sit back and critique mm-hmm. the the preceptor's argument. Mm-hmm. But it, but if the argument, though, if we understand the argument well and we present it well, mm-hmm. that shouldn't bother us. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because because one, it is a critique of that person. Because if I prove Christianity is true, then what you're saying is false. Yes. Right. So what you're saying is false, sir. And if you disagree with me, well, there are only a couple of ways you can do that. So tell me where you disagree. And it it keeps all of the uh, bantering to a minimum. Sure. You you really have to stick with the argument or you're off topic and we should just end the top. We should just end the conversation. Hmm. Now, John, I I ask you, so have you ever have you done debates before? Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I. uh I've like, can someone five. see what this argument looks like in the context of like a debate and like a yeah? So what's interesting is all my debates are prior to. So my first debate was on creation evolution. This was in like night uh, two thousand nine. Okay, and it was. I remember. I remember reading. I read Lyle's book like two weeks before the debate, and I realized I was an evidentialist. <laughs> but, I, but I can't change it, and so I tried to make best I could of it, and. Um, it was a great learning experience. And anyway, so I did that debate. Then the next debate, I mean, I just jumped in. I got out of college and I just jumped in and um, I debated Dan Barker. Uh, okay. Pretty cool school here in uh, St. Peter. This is, I think, 2010. Uh, and that How was fun. You? How do you think he did? Um, it, it was okay. I mean, I was like 24. And he was, you know, done 200 debates or whatever. And, right, right. Uh, so Dan Barker, which... You know, you wouldn't wish that on anyone to throw him at you because he's not there to reason. He's there to trick you. Yes. That's, that's the point of Dan Barker's method. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that was fun. And I, I it was on morality. It was Who is Your Daddy was the title of the debate. <laughs> so I thought that was a good title for uh, morality. Uh, but it was good. Like, I, I, I've always gotten positive feedback when I do debates. And sure. unbelievers have come up to me and said that they were intrigued by what I presented. So sure, yeah, yeah. they've all been used well. But looking back on it, I wouldn't, you know, present that way, and I wouldn't. Uh, sure. But one of the things, uh, one of my favorite parts of the debate, and I, I figured this was going to come up, but he, he put, he did this scenario where it was uh, basically like, if God told you to kill me, would you? And an atheist like to put you in those positions. All right. I think it's just to own it and say, I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. And I said that too in the debate, and it was pretty funny. Um, That's awesome. it, it was a way to neutralize his, you know, just trying to trap me. Um, right. But so that was a lot of fun. That was, that's on YouTube. Um, I, this is like, gosh, 13 years ago. So okay. It, yeah. I look right. back at these things and I would obviously do a lot of things differently, but sure. I think it's been used well. Um, then I did debated Dan Courtney twice. So once on my home turf, this is what I moved out to Pennsylvania and taught at a classical Christian school for seven years. Hmm. 
Um, so I moved out there and he was, he's from New York, maybe it's Ithaca, New York. Anyway, we debated God's, ex we debated morality and then God's existence. And it was like within a, a couple of months of each other. Um, so we did it at my place and then went to his place and debated God's existence. And I would say, and that was like 2013, 14. Okay. And that was where, that was right before though, I had learned logic. So I, I, I wanted to make my arguments deductive, but I never studied logic. Um, but I did a good, I, I think it was good cross-examination with him on uh, like in, in the inductive, um, can he justify induction? And I thought that I think the exchange went pretty well in the cross-examination. And so that, that was, you can see the growth from the first sure. one. Yeah. One. But then I, I, totally. I you, had, you had some guts there jumping into the cold yeah. water there. <laughs> yeah. It was, and, and, and some people counsel you not to do that because you're going to look back and say, Oh, I could have done some things better. And so, but, and that's true. Um, but I think it forms you like it, it shows you fairly quickly if you're, if you should do this or not. If yes. You like it, if can you, can you take making errors? Like, are you, are you too, proud to ever because if you're not if you're not willing to fail if you're not willing to make errors when you present or not do things maybe just not do things as well as you wanted to sure um, and you shouldn't get into this like you should this. be okay with your own limitations and take a loss at a debate as a learning experience yes and, yeah okay. yeah and many yeah. times they're not losses it's because the unbelieving position is so awful um that it just becomes mm, could have been better <laughs> you know it wasn't like he won it's just you know you didn't take it home Right. Um, so I encourage people to, if they have a heart to debate, work your tail off. I mean, put in, I remember I would memorize 20 minutes of presenting with the pauses. And I mean, I spent hundreds of hours in prep on the, on these mm. debates. So yeah, don't take it lightly, um, but don't be a fail, afraid to fail and to get better. And, sure. Um, and I haven't debated since then because after the debate with Dan Courtney, which I think went well, uh, I knew though, I didn't have it down exactly okay i need this so i stopped and i said you know what i'm gonna and i started studying logic started teaching logic and i dove into logic i mean logic was my life for five years mathematical logic like i got really principia mathematica with um russell and i love logic and that was essential to understand to put this together and the other thing that came along with it was Wittgenstein. I started playing with Wittgenstein and natural language. I knew there was, because I, I didn't know how to defend axioms. Sure. How do you defend them? But yet you they're not provable because they're assumptions in the argument. By definition, you don't prove them. Right. And so that was always a, a, a key stumbling block. Uh, but those two things, so really Girdle and logic and Wittgenstein and uh, philosophical investigations were... Mm -hmm. The two things that came together when I came back to, and I was teaching Van Til this whole time as I was studying this, but I didn't read Bonson or Van Til for like five years. I okay. just read this stuff. And then I came back to them in like 19. And that's when things all came together where I presented, I, I started putting the pieces together and then I presented it this last year. Right. Um, well, that's excellent. I'm always interested in the person's intellectual journey and all these things. So yeah. that's that's pretty cool to hear. I got to check out some of your debates. Well, let's let's get back to your your PowerPoint there. So you said that we welcome the burden of proof. Yes, and if you have proof, you should right. Welcome. If well, yeah, if you don't have a proof, then you yeah. should welcome the burden of proof. <laughs> but, uh, you should be. We should be careful about this term proof. Okay, we should be right. using it so loosely. All right. So so where do we go from here? Okay. So Van Til's apologetic is a deductive argument. This is this is uh, not. 
this is often denied. And I actually was, when I listened to the van, the transcendental conference that Bonson did with Michael Butler. Yes. Um, and they're in reach. So if you read Strawson in the sixties and then other transcendental philosophers get into the presuppositions, they'll talk about things and they'll, they'll describe transcendental reasoning as somehow different than deductive reasoning. Uh, it's not. And, but it sounds like it should be in certain contexts. And so it can really mess you up to get into what is the actual argument because mm -hmm. it, it becomes this thing that you can't pin down. It's just like, it's out there. It's this different thing. And we kind of just talk about it here and there. And I don't think it's, I think that's wrong. Um, okay. So I'm going to show, but Bonson was also, uh, I think a little confused, confused on this. So we'll get, get into that. Okay. So Van Til says when the Christian, I'm going to go through some examples of how they're against deductive Ness, like deductivism they talk about and also deductive arguments okay uh, and so we'll talk about so i'm going I'm to paint that picture and then we'll talk about it when the christian as an opponent use the same terminology they do not mean the same things both speak of inductive deductive and transcendental methods so he's assuming already there's three different but each of them presupposes his own starting point when he uses these terms which of course you know is true the fact that fact gives these terms a different meaning in each case. It follows from this too, that what the Christian is opposing is not these methods as such, but the anti-Christian presuppositions at the base of them, which I completely agree. I don't think, I don't think when you're using deductive arguments, you can be neutral to God. Right. Okay. Like you're either, you're either using, using God's truth as an axiom or you're not. Okay. So it's not in the meaning of your, the semantics of your, your uh, system here okay, is either for God or against God. And because, logic deductive is um these all inferences are true obviously that's god's truth right so we're, the, again it's not neutral to, okay. to god all right if the axioms on since bantil is really worried about the axioms if the axioms on which science depends are thought of as resting in the universe the opposite of the christian position is in effect maintained and so again, he, he's, he's worried that he was worried that if he had, if he would embrace deductive arguments, he thought that it required him to be somehow neutral to God because, and I think probably because everyone he read that was in the logic would behave that way. So I think he just got wrapped up in that. Um, Bonson says years ago, Van Til realized that opponents of presuppositionalism tend to think that there are only two kinds of reasoning, inductive and deductive. Deductive reasoning stands opposed to inductive. However, there is also transcendental reasoning in which the preconditions for the intelligibility of what is experienced, asserted, or argued are posed or sought. It too stands opposed to purely inductive, to a purely inductive approach to knowledge. All right. Critics seem to think that since presuppositionalism does not endorse pure inductivism, it must favor deductivism instead. This logical fallacy is known as false antithesis. And so when they use that, and this is not nuanced very well, but like when they switch to deductivism or deductive systems, they said they have a, a conception of logic that if there's a system, it must be neutral. Hmm. And, and I, and I disagree with that. So, 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 so okay. because of that false assumption, they then think that they, it, it can't be systematized or, you know, it's, it's somehow you, you can't, and, and Van Til gets into this uh, so deductivism is the issue. Van Til gets into this later. I'll show you. He's so worried that a deductive system would get rid of the mysteries of the gospel or the mysteries of God's um, sovereignty and man's freedom that it can't fit 
into a deductive system. And so okay. that's how he denies it. And anyway, but, but, and I quoted this last time, but Van Til and Bonson, especially Bonson, speak of Van Til's argument in deductive language, purely deductive language. Like there's no other way to understand it. He says on pages 79 to 80, it should be clear from the context here that Van Til meant to claim more than that the argument is valid, which is just that the premise of the conclusion follows necessarily from the premises. In the first place, the strong kind of argument that he's advocating would also be sound. This just means the premises are also true. Sure. Okay, so the argument has to be deductively uh, acceptable or valid, and the, and the premises have to, or, or axioms have to be true. So it's sound. It's a sound deductive argument. He says it should be clear from the context. Oh, sorry. Oh. There we go. Uh, moreover, the truth of its premises is acknowledged or knowable without prior acknowledgement or statement of the conclusion. The, the kind of strong argument Van Til intended by uh, argument intended by Van Til is a genuine cognitive advance. Without him realizing it, upon analysis to require or imply the truth of the Christian worldview. So he's saying that. We start with truth that the unbeliever would readily agree with, not knowing that it leads to the truth of Christianity. And sure. it's not truth neutral to God. It's God's truth. All of this is deductive. None of this is, is somehow a different kind of argument. Okay. So Bonson does this very well at certain points. And, and I quoted all this last time. But the problem is, and I think, and, and part of this is Bonson, I think at he knew of these issues, but I don't think he started really diving into them until the last year or two of his life. Mm. So as Michael Butler got into, and this, I'm putting this together through reading literature. And I actually interviewed Michael Butler one time. Um, Do you know where he is? Nobody seems to know I, where he is. <laughs> off, the grid, off the grid somewhere. Um, but he, he did his paper, I think on the, um, the philosophical literature, you know, transcendental arguments. Sure. And, and he has a, a, article published in that book on Bonson. Uh, you probably have it somewhere with the, or David Bonson gives that introduction. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, uh, fresh. I have it, uh, there we go. The, the standard bearer. Yeah, yeah, standard bearer. So yeah. there's an article in there by by Butler and, okay, and he's good. And there's some online lectures still by him that are right. on this. I like okay. Butler. He's pretty good. It's yeah. a shame that he's kind of missing an action. I think he yeah. had a lot of good things to, to say. Yeah. Uh, but the, <clears throat> so, but, but Bonson, and he was pulled in so many different directions and, but he, I don't think he really got into this until the end of his career or his life. And so when he wrote Van Til's Apologetic, which was the last year or so of his life, he starts to interact with this. And I think he's taking the language of Strawson and what's given and interacting with it without having been able to go through it in depthly for years. Sure. So I have the advantage of <laughs> spending all these years and not having his burden that he had you know, <laughs> in, in this. But but there's inconsistency in Van Til's apologetic on this on this issue. Okay. Okay, okay so but I'll just quickly go through the Van Til part here. But after all, you are not interested in a priori deductive systems. I have argued on a number of occasions against various people to effect that the biblical system of truth is based upon the exegesis of the authoritatively given truth content of scripture. So he's against a priori deductive systems, but the problem is Van Til, all of Christianity could be made into a deductive system. There's nothing wrong with that. Like you just give me the main, give me the main propositions of Christianity and we can formalize them. So then there's, it's not hard to do. Uh, well, I guess it's you'd have to know a lot of logic to do it, but right. but you can it could be hard. 
but, but I know he's there's nothing there's nothing inconsistent with deductive systems and Christianity. Okay. Keep going. I can hear it. Okay. So he says when exegesis seems to lead into so-called antinomies, such as the relation of the all-controlling sovereignty of God to the freedom or responsibility of man, I simply admit that I cannot logically penetrate the situation. See, Van Til is worried here that if he embraces deductive systems, he has to get rid of the uh the tension in our understanding of God's sovereignty and man's freedom, which will probably always be there, you know, where we just through the mystery, you know, that Van Til is so great to describe in, in God uh, that we will never be able to fully understand. Unless you adopt Molinism. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but for, formal systems in no way require you to get rid of mystery. Sure. But he thought they did. So that's why he was okay. meaning that. Um, I cannot, yeah, I won't go through the rest of that. Uh, okay. So this is where Bonson gets into this. He says that the transcendental argument has this special logical feature about it, that it can draw its conclusion from the affirmation of some position, as well as from the denial of that position. Hmm. This exhibits the necessity with the transcendental argument proves. This is not the same as a deductive necessity since the denial of a crucial premise in a deductive argument would render the argument invalid. And this is just, a, he's, it's, this is wrong here. Like, it's not that you can deny, if you deny a premise in any argument, I don't care what you're talking about. You The argument's done. <laughs> like, so I, I think, and here, here's here's where it's it's confused. Uh, well, and there's a footnote here by Oliphant in the defense of the faith where he, he referenced in Stra the Strassonian formula. Most of this comes from Strassen. Okay. Uh, so what is a presupposition? He says that, P presupposes Q or Q is a presupposition of P if and only if Q is true, provided P is true or P is false. I'm sure most people who read that have no idea what that means. It's like, that's how, this, this seems very complex, and, but it's, it's not like here, I'm going to unpack it so we can slow down and just go, what is a presupposition? What is he trying to, what are we trying to get at here? It's simply this, if P then Q, if not P, then Q. Okay, so Q follows from P, but Q also follows from not P. That's all that, what that meant. Okay. What, what, what was said there. Okay, so Q then is a presupposition of P because whether P is true or not, Q follows. Okay. All right, now, so when Bonson says about, you know, you can deny a premise and the thing still works. Well, what he means is if you deny the proposition, the antecedent. Like if you deny the antecedent, it still works because look, Q follows from the negation of it. Okay. This is a big deal because it shows up in the in in the literature all over the place. It shows up in Revelation and Reason and uh Don Collette, pages 270 to 271. Got that one too. So go if you go to those pages sometime, you'll you'll see this this talked about where Okay. And I'll get, I'll get into some of the detail here, but it frames frames book and his new his updated apologetics book on pages uh, let's see seventy six to seventy seven same kind of thing and he's actually talking about this article in Revelation and Reason okay and, okay so and this and this has been in other places as well okay all right but what's missed in all of this is that if you can prove one and two Q follows. If you can prove one and two, Q follows logically. So there's nothing mysterious about this. 
This is not some like extra logical thing. It's a standard deductive argument. This has been known even before Principia was written by Russell and Whitehead. I used to have the reference memorized in class that I would use and I would teach my students the, this being proven deductively in, in Principia. Okay. Uh, and this was known prior, this is known in the 1800s. Okay, so if so P is true, not P is true, right? Sorry, sorry, sorry. so if either one, then Q, Q follows. All right, now, if we were to update this to our argument, so we use lowercase letters because there's no content to them. We're just talking about propositions and like any, give me any proposition. Um, but if we want to give content to them, typically then in propositional logic, we then make them uppercase just to distinguish between the two. Now they have meaning in the sense of that specific meaning. So if knowledge, if there's knowledge, then Christianity is true. That's what K, so K is knowledge. There is knowledge. Yeah. C is Christianity is true. So if K, then C. If not K, then C. Right? Therefore, Christianity is true. Now, what they want to try to tell you is that, look, in this extra logical presuppositional thing, we can make the second premise not K, and somehow C still follows in this extra logical argument. And that's the nature of a transcendental. That's what they would say, but that's completely wrong. Okay. This, this is this is denying the antecedent. It's a common logical fallacy. It is not acceptable anywhere. You're not allowed to do this. But it's talked about as if it is because we're under this spell of that we're in something outside of deductivism or deductive you know, reasoning. And, and if, you, if you pin them down about why this is correct, what they do is they appeal to the other premise, if not K, then C. They'll say, well, but you see, though, C follows from either one. Well, okay, but then to do that, you just use that premise then with this, and it's just modus ponens. So this does not follow. C does not follow from the, the premises. That is an invalid argument. Okay. But just change the first premise then. If you've already proven, if not K, then C, and Anderson actually talked to Frame about this. He mentioned this to, to Frame, but what was missed is that you don't actually need not K if you have both these premises if K then C, and if not K then C, you don't have to worry about not K or K because you can get C right away. You don't, okay. you don't have to get into any of this, any of this stuff. Sure. But, but that's just how he would, this is how in their reasoning they do it. Well, again, this is deductive. If you pin him down, it's really just a deductive argument. Uh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so far it makes sense, yeah. Okay, so this is not some different thing than deductive, regular deductive reasoning. Now, the argument I presented is different than that one, though. The argument I presented is if K, then C, and then the second premise was K, there is knowledge, right? And just standard modus ponens, if K, then C, K, therefore C. All right, this is really important to get down because this, hang, this was a hang up for me for a while and how to prove this. Okay. <clears throat> um, so I need to formalize this for a second, just get rid of the, the if then. So... The, the, the arrow there is just if K then, just the if then. So if, if K then C, K therefore C. And the three dots is just therefore. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, so that's that's a distinct form of argument. It's Van Til's argument. There's also a way to present it though, which Bonson would talk about and others, where it's this other form where you're saying C follows from K or not K. So that would be another form of argument. 
if K, then C, if not K, then C, therefore C. There's actually a third way you can do this. And this is the one I spent most of my time on before I switched to this other one. Um, and that is this, if K, then C. So the first premise is always the same, but the second one would be if K, then C, then C. This would be that if Christianity is necessary for knowledge, then it's true. Okay. You know, could you, could you prove that? Um, and conceptually, it was easier for me to attack premise two in this third uh, depiction than the middle argument, if not K, then C. I think it's really hard to visualize how I, to I have a question. I have a question. So if, if knowledge, then Christianity, so you so K, if K, then C, therefore mm -hmm. C. If knowledge is true, then Christianity is true. What would you do when someone says, well, wait a minute, that's not necessarily true because there is a distinction between um, epistemological necessity and ontological necessity. So perhaps Christianity is a necessary framework for knowing things, but that doesn't tell us anything necessarily about the ontological situation. Like but the Christianity objection. Like so, um, and this would be an objection to the direct argument that I gave in the first okay. one. So Christianity is, <clears throat> is a worldview of propositions about the world. Okay. So if it's, if it is necessary for knowledge and there is knowledge, then it must be true, which means it's propositions must be true, which means you have ontological, um, truths proven. Okay. Right. So, and we're going to get into that in the next thing about it being a truth directed transcendental argument. Okay. So that's good. That's a good, that's a good point. Um, all right, so what's what's not known well though, and I didn't realize this until I worked it out in, uh, in I actually did this, well, so the middle argument, if K then C, if not K then C, therefore C, is actually the exact same argument as the third one, which is not obvious, just looking at it. So the first two premises are the same, right? If K then C. All right. But did you know that logically, if not K then C is logically the exact same as if K then C then C? Okay. So if you did the truth table for it, which I've, I've used to do this all the time in logic class, I would throw it up <laughs> for, for people. But if you just do the truth tables for both of them, you'll see that they're they're It's true, 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 false right. for, for all of them, um, which is the truth table for a disjunction. So they're the same logically, which you wouldn't know that just looking at it. So I thought that was interesting when, so they're actually the same argument. If you can prove one, you have the other. Sure. Yeah. Hey, this is what happens when someone comes in the middle of the stream and sees this on the on the someone at Mason says, "What's this algebra one or something?" <laughs> Actually, the biggest compliment you can give for someone teaching logic is if someone walks into your class and says, "This looks like math." Yes. And Mark say, Mark says, "Help! I'm logically deficient." <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. So I'll, I'll get through, and and uh, this is. This is meant to be something that you digest over time. Yeah. Here's the thing, John. A lot of people will complain that when we give the transcendental argument at the popular level, kind of just like through discussion, mm -hmm. oh, it's not specific enough. And yeah, then correct. when you go into the details, they'll be like, oh, this is too complicated. Well, so, you pick which one you want. Right. You pick right. which one you want. But go ahead. So, I don't see. I don't think this exists anywhere other than this presentation. So sure. if you want... The if you want the, I think precise and to the, then here it is, if it's too much, well then just back off and, you know, get, and, and the, and we give some of that in the part one, you know, where I talk about here are the different levels of complexity and how you want to present the right. argument. Um, but now the first one though is distinct. 
If K then C, K therefore C is a logically distinct way to do it. But they're both Van Tillian arguments, both of them. Okay. Well, the direct method actually has two different ways to do it. So there you go. It's a fun. Um, all right. So, but what makes the argument transcendental is the first premise. That's really important to understand. What makes the argument transcendental is not the conclusion. There are plenty of arguments that try to prove the true truth of Christianity that are not transcendental. That's the transcendental premise that will do most of the heavy lifting in the argument. Yes, you read, go read the literature and transcendental arguments by Barry Stroud or Stephen Corner or A.C. Grayling or Ross Harrison or Ralph Walker or the rest. And what is most of the time is spent on is this premise. This is what makes it transcendental. Is there a precondition for knowledge? Is there something necessary for there being knowledge or the possibility of knowledge or experience or the or a possibility of experience, et cetera? Would you say... Um intelligibility would be better than knowledge since the definition of knowledge is debated so if we were to if we were to define i was thinking about this today while i was driving home from work i really was uh, as you know um i was thinking about this that if we say if knowledge is possible then christianity christian worldview is true but then mm -hmm. someone can quibble over the tripartite definition of knowledge as a as a justified true belief that that is a debated definition so yeah. would things, what could we avoid that debate by simply just saying, if there's an eligibility, mm -hmm. then Christianity is true. Yeah. So I, I don't think you can avoid the term knowledge in this. Okay. Uh, so if you, <clears throat> most of the, you go to the literature on this, what they're trying to do, transitional arguments is trying to answer the skeptic. Right. And so how do we prove something? And then so the but they all assume that we have to give an assumption here. We got to grant that something exists, experience, possibility experience, you know, whatever that we got to grant something here. Now, they don't think they think it's acceptable for the unbeliever to deny that there's knowledge. I don't. I think that's absurd. I think we can easily refute that, which I addressed in part one. Okay. Um, but they would accept, but but because they assume that the unbeliever is allowed, or the unbeliever, the skeptic is allowed to do that, they soften K to to the possibility of experience, and they and they they um, possibility of knowledge. Well, they they equivocate in their terms sometimes. Like they'll they'll talk about experience, which I would take to be stronger than the possibility of experience. Right. Right. So so <clears throat> there actually is experience, not just the possibility of it. Well, and but they'll use them interchangeably. So it's not like this is a hard, fast terminology that people use, but they tend to move in and out of experience, possibility of experience, but they typically don't use the term knowledge only because they think that they can't make good on the second premise. Okay. Um, all right. So I think you can. So I don't, it doesn't really interest me that much. Um, but the, but here, when you talk about, intelligibility if i actually drill if i drilled you on what you mean by intelligibility you're talking about knowledge okay understanding the world well what are you understanding sure. okay well any That's propositions true. are they well are they true or false okay yeah. yes. are you saying you have evidence for them that's a good point yeah i are guess you, when you, if you push are you then... believing do you believe in your intelligence in your, when you're being intelligible are you believing in the proposition that you think is mm. true okay well then you just you just describe JTB. Like this is just knowledge that you're trying to cover up uh, in the, <clears throat> so I don't, I don't think it's good to, and Bonson used intelligibility 
and knowledge interchangeably. Like right. this wasn't, these are all just interchangeable things. Okay. Um, I don't think we should hide from the JTB debate because I think it's very answerable, like okay. easily answerable with Wittgenstein. So even I, in light of Gettier examples. Oh yeah, I, I go through this exhaustively. Okay. Um, in my Wittgenstein presentation at the on the Christchurch website, I did this actually at LBC at Mark Harnum's class. Okay. Uh, this past year, I think it was in October. And so I, I, I think we should embrace JTB without question. It is, it is clearly the, the uh, common man's definition of knowledge, completely satisfactory if you use it in the context in which it's supposed to be used. Okay. And without the false assumption that one of the false assumptions that Gettier states explicitly in his paper, the second assumption. Um, so you can, you can go to that if you want to see how that's refuted. Okay. Uh, so I embrace the definition. If someone questions it, I don't mind defending it. I think sure. it's because I think it's inevitable. I think you have to defend it okay. or else you're not going to be able to move forward. Sure. Um, does, that, does that answer your, your question? Yeah. I mean, I would want to see an illustration of it, but I'll, I can just check out the video. Yeah. I, went, I mean, I could come back and I could give it if you want. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Because I know Gettier examples are always brought up when we talk about knowledge and what makes for justification and uh, is it sufficient to actually know, to truly know something. So in that, in just a teaser, um, all Gettier examples are, they commit one of two errors. One is, and Gettier states, thankfully, he, you know, he states very clearly his two assumptions at the beginning of the paper, a beautiful paper, short and beautifully written, okay. um, is that basically justification transfers from a false antecedent. So if you have an implication, if A, then B, <clears throat> and you thought A was true, and you're justified because you can be justified in a false belief. So mm -hmm. if you're justified and, and, and um, sorry, if A then B, and that's actually true, B does follow from A. So you're justified in B following from A, you're justified in A being true, and you're inferring B from A, but, if I, but you find out later that A is actually false. It turns out that you were tripped. So Jones, you know, the Smith and Jones are the, Two people he uses in his examples well but then see he gets justification though to transfer from a to b from from a falsehood of a so justification he's assumed can transfer from a to b and so now he's now he believes b but we all know he doesn't really have good reason for it because his only reason for it was a but a is false right so clearly but he's justified he believes it and it's true so is it knowledge we would say no and I would say, no, I don't think he has JTB there. I don't think, I think he believes it. And I think it's true, but I don't think he's justified in it because I don't think I have to accept that justification transfers in that inference from okay. a false antecedent. And almost every example they give, that's how they treat it. And, and, and you can go, there are hundreds of these examples. It's the same scheme every time. You just okay. paint this picture, create it to where that you thought the antecedent was true and you make it false. And then that sets up this whole problem. Sure. The other way they do it is they create an environment in which justification was never meant to function. So you create some environment in which it breaks down, but it's like putting a tree on the moon and it didn't survive. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, of course it's not going to survive. It wasn't meant to survive on the moon. Right. Sure. So justification is not supposed to live in an environment where it's like, for example, if, uh, if I'm driving through the field, and there are all these barn facades. I don't know that, but there are all these fake barns. But there happens to be one true barn. And I look at it and I say, oh, a barn. 
it's true. I believe it, but am I justified hmm. in believing it? See, if you say I am, but clearly though I'm not, right? Like I am or I'm not, and that and that's the other way. They take they take the term and they put it into a context in which it's not supposed to function. Like hmm. we assume when we go out and we use these terms that what we see is generally reliable. We're not being tricked in some way, right? So anyway, so you can go. No, to well, I definitely am. In, I'm definitely interested in that. But we're, we're actually we are actually at the past the hour, and so I want to make make sure this is digestible. Oh, okay. So, is there a way you can kind of like summarize and wrap up what you were getting at with the indirect argument? The indirect. Um, well, what we were on the ind uh, the indirect, right? What you were going through here. Oh, I was just going through the the form of this. This oh, is a okay. deductive argument, and I was just okay. going through the forms. Okay. Form. All right. Well, let's see if we can if we can summarize kind of the main points of what you're trying to get through, because uh, I want to make sure people watch it. <laughs> if it's yeah. too long, then people won't watch the whole thing. But uh, uh, sure. is there a way you can kind of summarize the main points of, of what you're trying to demonstrate and then um, kind of briefly summarize the, the two ways that you describe and then we can wrap things up? Is that OK? Yeah. Um, can I just quickly move through the rest of it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, go for it. I'll go very quickly and yep. then people can. Um, I won't uh, interrupt you. You, you can go I, for I'll it. Go, I'll go very, very quickly on it. So the last sure. one, is, so another one is trans, the transcendental premise is truth directed. Okay. So this, this is important that when we do, if there is knowledge and Christianity is true, it's not that if there is knowledge, then we must believe Christianity to be true. Okay. Which is a different, that's a belief directed transcendental argument. Right. Okay. Ours is truth directed. Now this comes up because Bonson sometimes, and I have some other stuff on this, which I won't get into now. Um, oh, it's good stuff. This is all new. All new. <laughs> um, but Bonson says at the end of the impossibility of the contrary, what I'm going to show is that to prove anything, you must first believe in God. Right. And Richard Howe picks up on this right. and, and, and Van, Van, Van Til will slip into this. And it sounds like he's confusing the truth directed with the belief directed. Mm -hmm. And but he's not. I just think he's being sloppy here. So let right. me explain how. So presuppositions are our meta assumptions outside of the of our arguments this is this is very important to understand so when we come at arguments and i made it circle because you know circularity right <laughs> all right so so we make arguments they are this contained thing that i can hold and i can unpack and look at it has a form all arguments have a form i can hold it in my hand and i can look at it outside of any argument are the transcendentals i have to bring them to the argument now, we also sometimes call these presuppositions, which is fine. The problem is, though, not all presuppositions are transcendentals. Right. And so it can, it can, I won't talk about that. Uh, but I think it's helpful to call these meta assumptions. So not that we have to get rid of the other terms, but these are assumptions outside of the argument, not in the argument, outside of the argument. This, is, this explains Van Til with circularity. So in these arguments, where they're deductive, inductive, we have assumptions, we have conclusions, and we have definitions. All right, now Van Til calls it spiral reasoning, okay. right? They're a circular argument, but it's spiral. Transcendental arguments are spirally circular. I think it's the best term, it's the best term I've ever heard to describe this. Brilliant. So the meta assumptions are can be the conclusion in your argument, but they're not your assumptions and they're not explicitly in the definitions. So they're not formally circular, they're spirally circular. They're transcendentally circular. So, and everyone agrees that there's circularity when you start talking about induction and, and these things. Mm -hmm. You talk about Hume or Russell talking about Hume, or you get into the transcendental literature from the 1960s. They're all, they all agree there's some kind of circularity going on here. 
and they all agree it's not viciously circular. Well, how is that? Well, it's because it's outside of the argument. So, but it's clearly, I'm clearly assuming it and yet proving it. Right. To me, visually, this is it's the best way I can find to show that this is not viciously circular. If it was viciously circular, it would be in here. Right. The definition of the assumption, then I prove it. It's not, it's outside of it. Okay. And that's because of the ontology, epistemology, you know, yeah. thing. we confuse ontology with epistemology. Well, we don't see when Bonson. So this is, this premise is considered an epistemological premise in the literature, but we're proving an ontological truth, right? The truth of Christianity is necessary for knowledge. <clears throat> so the truth of Christianity is necessary for knowledge. Now, does that mean that you have to believe it for intelligibility? Well, yes, because the nature of transcendentals is they, is you have to use them to make any argument, any inference. Well, uh, clearly you have to believe the thing you're using. Even yes. if you're not aware of it, you're believing it. That's right. So that's what Bonson's doing is he's moving from here to here without explicitly stating it. And that get and Richard Howe has gotten more fanfare and time in, in speaking publicly and doing this stuff on claiming that there's an ontology epistemology confusion. And he, and he butchers these quotes from Van Til and Bonson. It's not very charitable in, in putting this stuff together for them. Well, um, if you ever want to have a dialogue with Richard Howe, I can set it up. I would love, <laughs> I would love, I, it's fine. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be fun. As I, I, I actually do have uh, his contact information. I would, um, I would love to, uh, yeah, we can dialogue on this and, and that'd be, that would be fun. Yeah. Well, we'll see. This, we'll see we'll do the rest. Um, okay. So that's the distinction that's, that's going on there. And Bonson sometimes, though, can confuse these two things. He can talk about unproven assumptions, he says, in the argument leading to conclusions. <clears throat> and so he confuses axioms and meta-assumptions sometimes, okay. which is, is into the form. All right. Now, the last thing about the presuppositions is uh, anti-Christian pre anti presuppositions are always inside the argument. They can't be outside because they're false. So they can't be transcendentals. So the transcendentals tell us about the ontological situation. Yeah, but they're they're true, right? right. So and then we have to bring them to any argument. Well, all anti-Christian presuppositions are false. So we can't bring them to arguments, really. So they they, they outside of the argument. Okay. So anti-Christian uh, reasoning then has to be formally circular if they're consistent. And, and if you actually do, dr drill into the arguments, evolutionists do this all the time, but realizing that uh, their definition of evidence, for example, will be anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. Or if you actually drilled into their axioms, which they don't state, uh, will will be some something that's really just- Well, well I know a guy who says, well, I don't, I don't have any presuppositions. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I said. Right. Okay. That's yeah. right. No, well, no, man. I don't have presuppositions. I'm like, okay. So all of it's circular though. And Van Til, I'm not sure he didn't have this laid out, but he saw it. He says reasoning in a vicious circle is the only alternative to reasoning in a circle as discussed above. Hmm. He called it in the first early on in his career. All right. The last part, which really quick, I want to say is Van Til's apologetic is not necessarily reformed. Oh, that's that's controversial. From what has been demonstrated. What do you mean? Clarify that. So they'll be like, wait a second. <laughs> I know. I want to show you. I want to, I want to, we got to go through this really quickly. I believe it is, it is reformed. Okay. By reformed, I'm just going to say Calvinism, TULIP. 
Okay. Reform technically is broader than just TULA, but sure. Which I'm just going to, for reform, for sake of argument, I'm just going to say reform just TULA. Um, I have looked at this and I haven't found anyone who's actually proven this. Van Til, Bonson don't prove it. They say it is. They don't prove what? That the argument is explicitly reformed. They say it is. They state well, it. Well, isn't the entire. Hold on. I'm going to go through it. I'll show you. I'll show, I think I have. I think I can show you where we haven't done it so far. Okay. All right. Okay. And then, I, but I think we can, I, but we haven't. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist to the bone. I'm a young earth creationist to the marrow, but I'm a Calvinist to the bone. Okay. <laughs> so, but I don't think this has been proven. Okay. Now, Van Til, he actually somewhat relents on this. He says that the main doctrines of Christianity is what we're defending in our argument. He says a reformed theology does not attribute infallibility to its confessions. Well, think about this. If Antil's argument is one of certainty, if it's inherently Calvinistic, then Calvinism we must know with certainty. If is it possible that we're wrong about Calvinism? If you say yes, then Van Til's argument cannot be Calvinistic. That that's right, and that because Christianity for Van Til was Calvinism. That's how he right. understood. That's how he understood. Well, it. I know, but I would say most Calvinists, if you push them, would say no. I don't know Calvinism is true with certainty. That's why I would say Arminianism could possibly be true. But Van Til wouldn't say that. I don't. Well, he seems to say it here. If in I'm this moment of weakness. His <laughs> moment of weakness. I've scoured his literature numerous times, like yeah, looking yeah. for these things. Read actually, not just like word searching the CD, the CD of his works, but like actually reading everything I can on him. And and so, yeah. And and right. and so he, but he sees to say here like. For all practical purposes, a faithful re reproduction of the truths of Revelation um, does not attribute infallibility to his confessions. Well, it, infallibility to any part of the confessions. But, okay, so he seems to relent here. But then you go through, it's like, well, there are only two ways to defend God's existence. The Arminian or the Calvinist. And the Arminian is the man, his man's way and the Calvinist is God's way. You know, like, and I, and I have all these quotes here. I think Lane, see, I wanted to get Lane Tipton to discuss this because when I had him, when I had him on, he would, I mean, he would. He would believe it is a component yeah. of a reform. And I, and I watched that presentation mm -hmm. that you had with him on, and I don't think he proved it. Well, I don't. I don't think he spent too much time trying. It wasn't. The, it was just a question. It wasn't kind of the main thing we sure. were discussing. But I would like to have him on. I'm not trying to fault him. I'm just saying that I don't. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm saying, but I, I would like to have him on to kind of unpack the necessary connection. Because I get okay. the question all the time. Like, I know Eastern Orthodox guys who use the transcendental argument. Is it something that only Calvinists could use? I get that question mm -hmm. all the time. Okay, so let me let me, let me me show you why I don't think it's been proven yet. But I think it can be. Okay, so here are the axioms of the direct method. Okay. Are there any of these axioms logically inconsistent with Arminianism? I don't think so. As far as I understand, I don't think... You have to deny any of these axioms if you're Arminian. And if that's true, then are there any definitions that I have to deny? Well, if not, then the argument's not Calvinistic. Wait now, a minute. Doesn't Arminianism, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, have inherent within it elements of possibility that is more ultimate than God? I, I, think, I think you can. I used to be an Arminian prior to my, my James White conversion. 
<laughs> we went through the Potter's Freedom and Chosen But Free, Roman Geisler. I read them back. To, I'd read them. I'd read one, then read the other. And I bought different versions of them. I'd go back and forth. And then the third <laughs> reading, <laughs> the third reading, I became a Calvinist right before my actually my uh, Barker debate. Um, so, but in practice, what you find is that Arminians almost always reject Axiom One and and or Axiom Five. They almost always reject these two. Well, surely there are other worldviews that are sufficient for knowledge. They would jump to say that's true. Or they would say that, no, all people don't know with certainty that God created the world. They, they interpret Romans 1 differently than we would. But I always thought that the, the whole idea of libertarian free will actually leaves contingency and possibility outside of God's sovereign control. Okay, so here, you're getting at it, Eli. So I think okay. you're getting at where we could prove this then. So okay. but I don't think it's the axiom here that's the problem with them then i think it's what we mean by god what okay unpack that for me so i think it's i think we have to prove so how i define christianity and how i define god has to be inherently calvinistic but the only way for me to do that is i have to be able to prove that calvinism is true how would i prove calvinism is true how do i prove the five points of calvinism or show that they're true they're plainly taught in scripture right we're talking about certainty here not just a good argument an irrefutable okay. argument, an argument that grants certainty, then sure, you may get at the um, your Arminianism's commitment to probability, which is the opposite of TULIP. Uh, if, you, if you deny any point of TULIP, you're, you're going to introduce, you have to prove that. You're going to introduce possibility. And then that is inherently inconsistent with our with the Bible's depiction of God. And if you could make good on that, then you've proven Calvinism with certainty. And that means then our definition of God in this argument and of Christianity is one that the Arminian could not hold. Okay. Hmm. So I guess you can give a transcendental argument for Calvinism, right? If if knowledge is true, then Calvinism must be the well, case. Well, you would actually because you define Christianity as in a Calvinistic, a Calvinistic right? framework. Yeah. Yeah, because I define it as the main doctrines of Christianity. Well, someone sure. could ask me, what are those? And I could list them. Um, okay. and say, and I could say Calvinism is one of them okay. and, and I could make my definition of God a little more Calvinistic explicitly. And when I define God in the first axiom, but until we do that though, because typically when you ask, like when Tipton was unpacking it, it was all on the theology of God. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't on that. There was some axiom or some premise that they couldn't accept. It was that our understanding of God, their understanding of God is not biblical. Hmm. And Van, and, and, and Van Til's understanding of God is inherent in his argument, which I agree with. Amen. Right. Well, you'd have to be able to show then that with certainty. Okay. And few people in academia that are reformed, I don't even know if James White would say this, that they can prove Calvinism to love. They can prove to love with certainty. Unless you define Christianity as having that as an essential element and include that in your transcendental argument. Sure. But if you couldn't demonstrate, but, but it's not, um, you gotta make sure you, you could, you, you select main doctrines though, that are actually main. Okay. Right. I, I, I could bring in, I'd uh, like to tease this out a little more. Yeah. I want to do, I want to do, uh, I want to ask some people what is the, uh, if they could prove the necessary connection as a very fascinating real quick. I just want to give a shout out to, uh, Clint, yeah. 
Clint from Australia, I believe. I believe he's from Australia. Thank you so much for your super chat. He says, I get so much enjoyment out of this channel. You're doing great work for the kingdom. Eli, cheers, mate. Thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you guys are enjoying my guest, John Kaus, who is, we're digging in deep today. It's, it's, it's a lot, but you know, the beauty of YouTube, you can go back and listen to it and watch it slowly and take notes and things like that. And so hopefully you guys are benefiting from deep conversations like this. And some of the more uh, intermediate level discussions that we have uh, when we have other guests and different topics. So uh, thank you so much for that, Clint. And I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, all right. Well, thank you again for that super chat. Now, um, John, if you could now uh, kind of give some uh, or maybe kind of zoom through to sure. the end of your presentation so that we can wrap things up in a nice way um, that yeah. will make sense. Um, cause I don't want to go too long. Cause again, the longer, the, the longer it goes, uh, people won't watch the whole thing. It's just too yeah, long. So I think you're doing an excellent job by the way. And I definitely will go back and listen to this again. So, but if you can, uh, if you can do that for me, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Uh, so seven points in this, uh, Van Til's apologetic has two different ways. You, you can prove it. They are distinct. They're not the same. And we typically blend the two and we need to stop doing that and make good on either one. Uh, the topic of self-deception is not central to Van Til's apologetics. So understanding how the unbeliever can know and not know God is not being able to actually put that down plainly is not essential to to do the apologetic. Uh, if you have a proof for God's existence, which is what Van Til's apologetic is, then you should welcome the burden. You should say, I'll stand up and present it. You critique it. We should we should do more of that. Hmm. Uh, Van Til's apologetic is deductive. It is not somehow some third way of arguing, some transcendental, extra logical way of arguing. Arguing It's a regular deductive argument. What makes it distinct is the meaning of its first premise, which is transcendental. <clears throat> and that premise is truth directed. So it's not this that we're believing that a belief, we're not just proving that a belief is necessary for knowledge. We're, we're showing that a truth, many truths actually about the world are necessary for knowledge. And it's the truth of Christianity. So the Christian worldview is necessary for knowledge. And we prove them that, that that's true. Um, and this transcendental of Christianity and all transcendentals are meta assumptions outside of our arguments. And this is what makes it circular. How can we assume, uh, how can we assume scripture is the infallible word of God and yet prove Christianity to be true without being suspiciously circular? That's what we talked about in the sixth right. point. That's, that's, this is a key, that's key to unpacking that. And the last one, which I figured would be somewhat controversial, um, but I stand by it and I would love to, <clears throat> I'd love to dialogue with anyone really, you know, it's fine uh, on it. It's just to clarify, I am a, I am a Calvinist. I think Van Til's apologetic is Calvinistic. I'm committed to that, but I don't think it's been demonstrated. Okay. So there you go. All right. Well, that's, that's something that we need to flesh out or read the literature and see what people have said about it. It's kind of like, just like you said before, cleaning, cleaning some of these things up and yeah clarifying them i think that's that's important yeah i know some people will be listening to this and disagree and think that it has been demonstrated but that uh that's okay i mean that lay out your argument let's let's listen to it and, and follow yeah. it through and that, that's what it's all about so yeah all right all right so uh seven points there that's awesome so i i would like to have you back on in the future to talk about some of those uh gettier examples talking about the nature of knowledge and justification and things like that um, yeah, that would be a lot of fun, but dude, this has been a lot. It's a deep dive, but it's interesting and definitely, um, 
you know, helps clarify some things. If people can get past some of the, you know, the letters, like the, this implies that that can be difficult. When I teach law, I teach logic at a, at a class, a classical Christian school. Mm -hmm. And I try to stay away from the letters, not because they're not good. I mean, it's very helpful in, in various contexts, but for like students, sometimes it's too abstract. They need to see like a content that fills the letter. Like what are the actual propositions mm -hmm. that fill those, uh, fill those categories. So I tend to teach it like that, but I mean, either way, I mean, it's, it's uh it's a useful tool in teaching logic. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot to chew here, man. I really appreciate it. You did an excellent job. Yeah, no, I, uh, I love dialoguing on it and I love your channel. So keep up the great work and let me know how I can help. Absolutely. And we'll definitely get you back on and, and talk about, um, I, I want to talk about also as, as awesome as, and in depth as all this is, I want to see how you would engage in like, um, regular conversation with like, how can the average person who says, you know what? I don't know. I mean, I kind of follow what John is saying, but like, what does this look like in conversation? Maybe we could have you back on and kind of have like these like mock dialogues where we can show Great. what, what, a, what this looks like in a conversation so that we can have some practical application to some of this like rigorously logical um, argumentation that you've given us today. Would that sound okay? Great. That would be wonderful. All right. Well, we don't have a lot of questions, but there is one question here from Clint who gave the super chat. Um, mm. uh, he says here in part one, John mentioned some literature he obtained from Bonson's son, if I'm correct. Would he kindly refresh on that? And will he ever release any of this online for public review? <laughs> um, yeah, I have over a thousand pages. David Bonson sent me all of Bonson's binders. So like the notes, on his, most of his lectures, I have the notes on that he used. You know, Lucky punk <laughs> papers from uh, Westmont. I think it was Westmont, right? That's the school in California. I haven't yeah. looked at this for a while, but the Westmont in California for his undergrad, and then the Westminster papers. I have a ton of those with Frame and others, Dantil comments, and it's pretty cool stuff historically. And then I have stuff from USC when he did his stuff in philosophy, <clears throat> and then I have some unpublished stuff uh, on top of that. Stuff that he That's used. pretty cool, but it's all physical stuff, so it's not like it's available online. Yeah, correct. So what I, what I want to do someday is, uh, I think God's entrusted this to me, so I want to make take that seriously. And but but I also want to make sure it, it's complicated because how do you publish stuff from someone who's developing intellectually? So what you read from Bonson is the Bonson who is, you know, the man, and which I I think Bonson's great. Uh, but Bonson at Westmont was not the man. Hmm. So should you publish papers from Westmont? I don't and know. He was still in the process of yeah. learning. Stuff, even, right? even at Westminster, he hadn't had a PhD in philosophy yet. So mm -hmm. some of his interaction on philosophy, I mean, on theology is, you know, obviously he, he won awards there. I mean, he did things that people today still haven't even done at Westminster. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was incredibly gifted. But he was developing. So when he's interacting with Wittgenstein, for example, with in his his couple of seminars with Frame, I have those papers. Um, I wouldn't like. I don't. I don't think it's a. I think it's good. It's well. But he's clearly working through these ideas, right? Sure. So, sure. I anyway. But but there's a lot of stuff that's clearly advanced and good stuff to to publish. Um, so it's not so easy on what to publish and what not. But so. But I think a lot of it should be published too for historical record. Because I think it's encouraging too for people like me and you and other mortals um, that <laughs> that God forms men through learning over time 
which means that they have to be inferior earlier on. Sure. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, which, which requires it's necessary. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think following you could, this would be unique. If I would publish all of it with some commentary and stuff, you would see the, the, the rise intellectually yeah. in the development of his thought, which I think would be good. So I lean toward that, but it, anyway, mm. but yes, I plan on publishing it someday. Well, that's awesome. Clint says, uh, thanks for clarifying, John really enjoyed your talk again. Hope you come back for that dialogue with Eli so we can do kind of some role playing. So that, that'll definitely happen. We'll make that happen. And just to clarify the, the, I, when I present, I would never present this to a lay audience. Like I would right. never come in and just go, this is if someone but you've been in this Eli where they say, well, and they want to press you to go deeper, right? Well, then we go, but you have to have the deep. So you're always prepared to go there, right? If you can't yes. ever go deep, then you can play in the broad prop popularization of it, which is not wrong, but sure. I don't want to get into a conversation with someone where he can go deeper than I can. Right. And so anyway, that's, but so I wanted to publish that and get that out there. That doesn't mean that when I talk with people, I'm mostly doing this. This is more, this is me. <laughs> it's right. Chris will be looking at you like, I have very, I have I little failed algebra. I don't want to do this. Right now. <laughs> I don't dialogue with anyone on these issues. This right. Is me with a lot of dead men talking. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks a lot, John. Uh, we're here at one hour and 36 minutes. So people have uh, lots of content to kind of review. I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, this presentation. Uh, it's not so much an interview. So I kind of limited my questions. I wanted him to kind of just jump into, uh, you know, what he had there for us. But um, next time I have him on, we'll try to do kind of like a, a discussion or a mock kind of discussion between a believer and unbeliever. And maybe field some questions from the audience. And so I'll make sure I build that up so that we get lots of questions and you can kind of see. I think, I think we should do it where I'm not, I'm unprepared. Like I don't have like a real situation, right? Where you yes. come and you start yeah. throwing stuff at me and I might have to stop and think and go, I guess how these discussions work. Yeah. 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 That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, so we'll definitely make that happen. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode here just real quick. I want to pop this back up again. January 21st is the Epic Online Calvinism Conference. You can sign up right now at revealedapologetics.com. Um, click on the Precept U um, drop-down menu and RSVP. This is an excellent way to support Revealed Apologetics financially. Uh, when people um, pay uh, to um, attend this event virtually, um, that goes to the ministry, and it is very, very helpful. So um, if you're looking for a way to support Revealed Apologetics, that's one way to do it. Of course, Super Chats, like Clint sent, is also another way as well, and there's a donate page on revealedapologetics.com. So really appreciate your support. If you can't support financially, then I greatly appreciate your support by just simply um, joining me on these live streams and listening in and benefiting from uh, what we're doing. So um, with that said, that's it. This concludes our discussion, John. Thank you so much. And that is all, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.